John 11, 45, we'll read through the end of the chapter. We'll finish up this section that's somewhat still tied to Lazarus. So many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation, not, and not, not the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? And now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. You may be seated. So Lazarus has been raised. We talked about that last week. And there has begun from that moment this significant miracle. Four days in the tomb raising a man. There began to be an alignment of those lining up with Jesus or lining up with those who didn't believe in Christ. And so we will... We will, we will see today kind of what's going on in the backdrop before the last week of Jesus' life. So we are probably, as we come to verse 45 today, we're probably, um, probably 14 days from the death of Christ, somewhere in that neighborhood, maybe a little bit less than that, but we are somewhere near the neighborhood of that. And there is this great alignment that is happening. So we will see Jesus and the twelve and what they are doing. We will see the mourners, that they will be divided today into two different groups, those who believe and those who don't believe. We will see the perspective of the chief priests and the Pharisees. This last miracle of Christ uh, has kind of put them over the edge, and they're going to have a council today and kind of talk about what they're going to do about Jesus. We will see Caiaphas, the high priest that year, his perspective of Christ and what needs to take place. And then we will close today seeing the common people's perspective or the masses or the crowd and seeing their perspective of Jesus. So before we begin to really dive into the text this morning, I want to make an observation that is taking place in our world today that is taking place at the end of John chapter 11. And this is is what I want to say. The world for the last 2,000 years has had a Jesus problem. They have had a perspective of Christ that they've not known what to do or some have have known what to do about that and that's either a belief in Him or a rejection or a mocking of Him. And so we see this in our day and time as well. You look at our world today and there are countries of the world today that have a Jesus problem and a Jesus people problem. 
where there is severe persecution that is directed toward the followers of Jesus. Uh, Their property is plundered and some of them are killed for their faith. Some of them are thrown in prison. Uh, They are tortured. They are beaten. And so so for many countries of the world, there is a there's an issue with Jesus. Now I'm going to talk a little bit later. Our country has a Jesus problem as well. And we are seeing the continuing rise of, of the perspective of our country in regard to uh, God's people, truth, the Bible, the church, etc. So countries of the world, our culture in America has a Jesus issue. And this is really the big one. And in, some, in many ways, it's really the biggest dangerous one. And it's a sad one, and it's that many churches have a Jesus problem. Is that they are not deeply tied to the full revelation of God that has been given to us in Scripture. And so there has been a big shift in the last number of years in regard to the church ought to be primarily only about fixing social issues in our country. And so the gospel has become uh, socially driven. Now the gospel does address social issues. Jesus is the answer to everything. But the church is to be about the gospel, and the gospel is Jesus. And so we cannot put anything before that reality. There's been a a big move in churches of drifting from a biblical focus of what the church needs to be about and a redefining of the gospel. And so we are seeing in our day and time exactly what we were seeing at the end of John chapter 11. And so I want to walk us through this and so that we can see what was taking place um, just outside of the time frame of the last week of Jesus's life where there are many different things happen, happening and taking place where people are lining up in their perspective of Christ. And so let's look at the first one this morning. Look at 45 and 46 with me again, please. We're going to look at the eyewitnesses of Lazarus's rising and we're going to see how they Um, began to line up with either being with Christ or against Christ. So many of the Jews, therefore, these Jews are in Bethany. They had come with Mary, and they had seen what Jesus had done. And they believed in Him. And then now we get a, a perspective of the other group in verse 46. But some of those who were also eyewitnesses went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, I want to remind us of the context here. In John chapter 11, verse 4, um, word gets to Jesus. He's back in the region where John the Baptist was baptizing. So he was spending some time there. Uh, Lazarus gets really ill. It's really clear that Lazarus is not going to make it unless Jesus comes and brings healing. Doctors have not been able to do anything. So they get word to Jesus. Your friend Lazarus is seriously ill, and the sisters want you to come and do something about that. And so Jesus delays for four days the arriving in Bethany because he says in verse 4 that this illness is not going to result in a permanent dying, a permanent death, but there's going to be something that happens that will display the glory of Christ, and that will be the raising of Lazarus by Jesus. And so the delay is designed to reveal the incredible power and authority and the majesty, and to confirm and affirm that Jesus is the Son of God in the midst of the people. So Jesus does arrive. He gets the stone rolled away. He speaks. 
His word has such great authority. He calls forth Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus walks out. And everybody present, watch this, notice this. Everybody present that day saw the fulfillment of what Jesus said in John eleven four. The glory of God was manifested in their midst in the rising of Lazarus. And yet the perspective and the response to that took people on two different tracks. And so here are the two tracks. One, people saw it and went, this is the Son of God in our midst. And they believe and they trusted in Jesus. There are those who saw the very same thing of those who believed and they did not believe and they rejected Christ and they went two miles away into Jerusalem and let the religious leaders know what was happening and taking place. And so among the eyewitnesses, there were those who believed and there were those who aligned themselves with those who hated Jesus. And let's talk about them now. So word gets into Jerusalem among the religious leaders. So we're told it's, it's among the higher religious leaders, the high priests in this group, the chief priests and the high priests, and also just the many of the Pharisees, and they've got a Jesus problem that they don't know what to do with, and so they're going to have a council together and have a meeting. So verse 47 and 48, if you'll look with me again there, we will see the alignment of either of those not exalting Christ, should be exalting Christ, but they are concerned about their self-interest. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered council, and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs, And I laugh at this. You can laugh with me. They say these words. If we let him go on like this, like they were in control of what he was doing anyway. They were in no control. Remember, they've tried to arrest him. They have tried to stone him. They have tried to shut him. They've tried to, to, in Nazareth, throw him over a cliff. And they have had no success in this. They are not in charge. But they think they are. And so they're like, if we... You know, we could stop this. If we continue to let him go on like this, here's what's going to happen. Everybody is going to move from us, and they're going to believe in him. And then the Romans are going to come, and they're going to take away our place and our nation. So again, we see that they have a Jesus problem that they don't know what to do with. And so the only solution is, is we've got to get rid of him. We've got to get him away from us, and we've got to stop this. And so as the news about Lazarus reaches them, they have another chance to affirm that the Messiah is in their midst or they can further harden their heart and they choose to further harden their heart. It's amazing to me because of the the calling that God has upon my life of studying the Scripture, proclaiming the Scripture, that men like this who have been waiting as a part of the priesthood, their whole lives for the coming of the Messiah. He has come. They are deep students of the Word. They should have found the greatest joy that the Messiah had come, that He was walking around in the midst of them, and they could have spoken with Him. They could have prayed with Him. He could have prayed over them. He could have taught them so many different things. But in the end, the words of Jesus found no place in their lives so these men who are students of the word in the end the word of god found no place in their heart 
And these masters of the word could only eventually reach the place where they wanted to kill the incarnate word in their midst. And every one of us in the room this morning, and every single person on the planet today has to come to answer the question that they ask here. What are we to do about Jesus? What will we do about Christ? It's the same thing as in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus asked the twelve, who do people say that I am? And so they give a perspective and then Jesus makes it very personal. But no, but who do you say that I am? And so all of us, we have to come to this conclusion and this decision. What are we to do about Jesus? And so they're asking the right question. They are discussing the right topic. They just don't come to the right conclusion. And they should have. Again, they should have been ready for the coming of Jesus. And so notice what they say. For this man. They didn't see Jesus, but just an annoyance. He was an annoying man to them. Bringing people away from following their leadership. And they just seem as a man. But notice what they cannot help but affirm in the life of Jesus. So do, do, they, do they deny Jesus' miracles? They do not. They affirm that Jesus is actually doing signs that in many ways cannot at all be explained. Look what they say. What are we to do? For this man who's an annoyance to us, it's clear he performs many signs so here we have people who are jesus haters who are affirming what that jesus is doing the supernatural therefore god must be with him he is doing things that only god can do healing people raising people from the dead giving sight to the blind straightening up backs stopping bleeding conditions, freeing people by casting demons out of them. So they know, and they're affirming this clear about this man, Jesus. He performs the supernatural. And for all of us in the room this morning, we must get to the place where we look at Christ as more, with, more than just with natural eyes. We must see that Jesus is God, that He does the supernatural. All of us are born in sin. All of us are born spiritually dead on the inside. How does spiritual life come? Through a supernatural work of Christ through His death and raising the dead to life by faith in Him. And so here you have men who, watch this, spent their days teaching Old Testament stories of God doing what? Supernatural natural things in the midst of people but notice them in their life as eyewitnesses of the supernatural they're affirming the old testament supernatural work but right in their midst jesus is doing the supernatural more powerful things that are seen in the old testament and they are denying and rejecting christ So we must consider, and we must do this, that Jesus does the supernatural. He raises things that are dead, things that are in the dark, and He brings them to life and light. And so they get together, they call the council together, they are 
having counsel together and they're asking the question, why are we letting this go on? We have let this go on too long in regard to this man. And here's their issue. They see the discipleship of Jesus, the evangelism work of Jesus, calling people to faith in Him as a danger, not as something that should be a delight. They should have been so excited that people were coming to faith in the Messiah. And yet what they saw was, no, this is a danger. This is such a danger that people are leaving Judaism to follow this man. This is not good. And so they try to step in and do something about this. In my years from 2004 to 2008, when we were church planters in Germany, one of the things that we began to uh, discover early on is that um, mostly there, there are churches like us in Europe. There are not many, um, but you're either, like in Germany, you're either strongly Catholic or you're strongly Lutheran. And what we began to st- discover about the Lutheran denomination and the Lutheran churches is that 80% of the pastors of the Lutheran churches in Germany are not born again. They have not come to faith. And about the same percentage do not affirm that God's Word is God's Word. They don't even believe it. They have a career. They don't have a calling. And so therefore, watch this, when people come and gather, if you're not born again and you don't delight in the Word of God, you cannot give what people who come to your congregation need more than anything else, and that is the proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah, He is the Lord of all, and that our faith must be grounded in Him. My deepest delight, my deepest delight is hearing from you what you are learning and how you are connecting your life with Jesus. Every Sunday, my great passion, my great prayer is, is that never, and I don't think this is ever the case, that you are ever fascinated by my words. But you are just engrossed in the glory of who Christ is. That's what I want for us more than anything else, is that we would, we would find the delight of knowing Christ through the revelation of Him in the Scripture. That I would never see that this is a danger. I, you follow Him, not me. Follow Him more than anything. Follow Jesus. And so here you've got the religious leaders. They're like, this is a danger that people are going to Jesus. And they should have been so excited about the reality that people were coming to faith in Him. They saw it as this deep danger. They feared belief in Jesus as the most unnecessary step in the land. And this is our problem in this country today, is that there are even churches that are not proclaiming this this morning. And I just want to say it to this morning, come to Jesus today. If you are a believer in Him, pursue Him in discipleship. If you do not know Him, come to the lover and maker of your life. And you will find deep joy deep peace, deep mercy, incredible grace in the life of Christ. And so they're fearful of belief in Jesus when it was the biggest thing that they needed in the country. And they have two great fears. People, 
if they just keep going to him, the Romans are going to go, hey, what's this? And they're going to come, and they're going to kind of connect it with us, and they're going to take away our authority. They're going to take away our influence with the people. And then they feared this, that they would take away the temple life. And so they're worried about our place and their position with the people, but our, also our place in regard to the temple. And so because they're so worried about this, they had made it the temple such an important thing in their life that it had almost become an idol to them that they are willing to kill the one who is the greater temple to preserve a temporary temple. And in AD 70, this temple that they had treasured so much that they'd almost worshipped and allowed it to be an idol, God allowed the Roman army to come in and destroy it. And the only thing that is left is what we see in Jerusalem today called the Wailing Wall. It's the only thing that was left. Every stone, Jesus had told them, every stone is going to be toppled. And this place is going to be destroyed. And so he becomes the greater temple. And so they're worried about their place. And so, number one, we see that with those who were eyewitnesses of the miracle of Lazarus, they believe and don't believe. They go and tell. And then the Pharisees get involved and, and they begin to align themselves with their own self-interest. If you were a religious leader back in the day, boy, you made money. You could line your pockets. And so they're concerned about losing that. They're concerned about losing their influence among the people. And they're concerned about the temple. And here's the third thing I want to see this morning. Is that we've got to get to a place where we align ourselves with the truth. Or we will align ourselves with religious arrogance or false or fake Christianity. So Caiaphas, who's the high priest that year. Let's read his words again in 49. One of them. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You guys don't know anything at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God, who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And I want to talk about Caiaphas's words. They are fascinating. Now again, this text this morning is a little bit different. It's not as awesome. There's not a dead guy that's going to walk out of the tomb this morning. But these, these are really significant words. Seeing what is happening in the backdrop, approaching the last week of Christ's life. Now, Caiaphas, we've all met a Caiaphas. We've all had a Caiaphas in our life. And it's that person who looks at you and go, you don't know anything. I'm the boss. I'm in charge. I know more than you. And so let me tell you what you guys are missing. And so one of the clear marks of a false Christianity, a fake Christianity, a religious arrogance, is that it often looks down on others from the leadership perspective. And here's Caiaphas. He's got all these people around him. 
They've studied the word like he has. They've got a perspective of Jesus. And so Caiaphas says, you guys don't know anything at all. I'm here, though. Lucky for you, I'm here. I can explain it to you so that you fully understand what you were missing on this. And so he postures himself to be concerned for the people, but he does so in a place of deep arrogance. And so he tells them, y'all aren't smart enough to discern the issue that is going on with Jesus. So let me tell you what I know. And so listen to me. And it brings us to the second thing about a false and fake Christianity. It's connected to religious arrogance. Is that it often thinks logically, not spiritually, and not necessarily biblically. Look at 51. So it says this, that he did not say this of his own accord, that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. Now, the fact that they were rejecting the true Messiah and they were designing to kill him, murder him, and they were talking about that there, it's clear, don't miss this, even though Caiaphas says the right words, he doesn't understand what he's saying. So even though Caiaphas is saying the right words, there is no way in their plan to kill Jesus and to talk about murder in the temple that they've sought the Father about who Jesus is. Because what would the Father say about who Jesus is? This is my Son. This is my beloved Son. You listen to Him. This is the one that I've sent to redeem and to rescue you. And so they have not come to a spiritual decision. Or Caiaphas has not come to a spiritual decision. But this is a man-centered logical conclusion in his determination about who Jesus is. And I want you to notice what he says. Look at, I think it's 51, right? Uh, No, 50. Notice that he uses the word, nor do you understand that it is better. He doesn't say this is, he doesn't say this is righteous. He doesn't say this is biblical. He doesn't say this is God ordained. He just says, this is better. It's better for us, logically, not for all of us to die at the hand of Rome, It's better that this man, Jesus, dies. That will be better for us. So here's the third thing. Fake Christianity, religious arrogance, false faith, often misses the true spiritual meaning of things that are being communicated. Now look at the second part of 51. Now he did something and said something that year that was spot on, absolutely accurate. But he had no idea the meaning of it. And God has done this in the past in Israel's history in regard to things that we read in the Old Testament. So the second part of 51 says he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now let's just take those words. Let me tell you something. That, those words in and of themselves, are right on truth doctrine. So look at them. Jesus would die for the nation. Yes, He would. He would also die for the sins of the world. So not only for the nation only, but when He died, He would gather not just the Jews, but He would gather all those scattered abroad, and He would bring them in to one family. This, these words... Though he doesn't fully know what he is meaning, the implication of them, they are accurate 
biblical words, and they fall in line with what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 16, when Jesus said, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, let me make sure that we understand what Caiaphas is saying here and what is taking place. Every word that Caiaphas spoke here was correct in and of the words. God ordered them, though, with a different meaning than what Caiaphas was understanding them. And does not God do this? God has used, watch, He's used pagan people to speak truth about Him. Cyrus, king of Persia, Nebuchadnezzar, Balaam, Balaam's donkey. God has used other means to communicate and affirm who He is. It's kind of like this. Remember Joseph? He's with his brothers and he said, you meant this in my life for evil, but what did God do? God meant it for good. And this is what Caiaphas is doing. He is saying, as a matter of fact, listen, this is a beautiful definition of what we call the substitutionary death of Jesus. Caiaphas is clearly communicating in the words that Christ would be the substitute to die for the people. But he has no clue, ultimately, he understood the words differently, that it was better to save Israel from Rome's arm than to be saved from sin. And he missed it because of his prideful arrogance. And so Caiaphas, Caiaphas's counsel, his teaching, his proclamation here, convinced them, and they all looked at each other and just went, yeah, good word, let's get rid of the problem. Let's get rid of Jesus. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And again, those plans indicate that they didn't really fully understand the words that Caiaphas was speaking. They didn't get the meaning of it. And here's what they decided. Crazy. Death to the one who brings life from death. Let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. Death to the life giver. Now I want to just briefly talk about what should mark authentic Christianity based on opposite of what we see with Caiaphas and the high priest and the religious leaders. And here's the first thing that I'll mark. These, these won't be on the screen. These were additions from yesterday. But this is what ought to mark authentic Christianity based on what we see here. If we want to know Jesus and we want to walk with Jesus, then we ought to listen to learn. Be a student. Learn. Caiaphas was arrogant. Y'all don't know anything. I know everything. So let me tell you what the reality of things are. As believers, we should have a deep humility in approaching the Scripture to learn. I look across this room, and I have learned so much from you, of talking with you, hearing what you're learning, what God's doing in your life. And so, so I love these conversations because I learn a lot from you about who Christ is and about how He works. And so we, we should listen to one another in the, in the things that we are learning in regard 
to the Scripture. We should have a learning posture. Second thing that should mark authentic Christianity is this, is that we ought to always aim at arriving at biblical decisions. Not, not, we can use logic. God gave us logic. But sometimes God's not logical. Hey, Gideon, trim your army down to really small. And watch what I do. And so Gideon had to trust and believe. And other times God has called his people to be this way. We must always aim in our faith to arrive at biblical decisions. And to do this, to arrive at biblical decisions, what do you have to know? You've got to know the Bible. If you know the Bible, then you can arrive at biblical decisions. My favorite New Testament verse is still at the top. Nothing has dethroned it yet. Is 1 Corinthians 2, 2, where Paul wrote, For I decided when I was among you to only know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And Paul's telling the church at Corinth, everything flows out of knowing Jesus. You arrive at the right decisions by knowing Jesus. How do you know Jesus? You know the Word. And as we know the Word, we can arrive at that place. Here's the third thing that should mark authentic Christianity is that the only cause of action is not less of Jesus, but what? More of Jesus. And so here they are trying to get Jesus out of the way, these religious leaders, and they should have wanted more of Jesus, and they want to get Him out of the way. And for us, we want more and more and more of Jesus. Our culture is pretty much done with Jesus, the American culture. And our culture is pretty much done with those who affirm the biblical Jesus. And you hear it all the time now, and it will continue to increase unless there is a marked revival and awakening in this country. And this is what is happening today. They do not want to hear, our culture does not want to hear our voice on the sanctity of marriage. They're done with our perspective. No, I can, I can call marriage, marriage any way that I want to name it, rename it, redefine it, label it, call it, etc. Our culture doesn't even want more of Jesus in our perspective, and so they tell us, quit telling me about absolute truth. We all have our own truth, and we all have our own version of truth, and that's clearly defined for us as part of the result of the rejection of God that we see in Romans chapter 1. So we are told by our culture they're done with Christ, they're done with His people. We're tired of you saying there's a truth, there is the truth that is connected to Christ. Our culture is done with the Bible, by the way. It's done with the Bible. And it's tried to eradicate it, and they can do whatever they want to. You know what? The Word of the Lord stands forever, ever. So they can do whatever they want. They can say whatever they want. Take it off of walls in Congress. You can do whatever you want to. It's living and active because it has been breathed out by God. Our culture is telling us, and they're done with Jesus, to be quiet, Christians, about social issues unless you buy into the liberal definition of the social issues. And so critical race theory and a number of different things 
in regard to gender and all of that. Our culture is done with that. So listen, church. They're done with our perspective. They're done with Jesus. They're done with the Bible. And there's not a thing we can do about that other than to stand and live and speak the truth. That's what we do. That's what we are called to do. So they can quit on it. They can suppress it. They can deny it. They can be done with our perspective of that. And by the way, I don't know if you've looked around lately in 2021, this rejection of God has not borne very good fruit in our country. It's a mess. And I think sometimes we ought to look in the mirror as the church as a big part of the culprit of that. But the, the hope for our country is people like you and I all over this country who love God and love the Bible and want to live in the truth. And I think that in some ways, again, this is personal opinion, that that may be why he has staved off a bigger judgment upon our country right now is that there's still people like us. There's a remnant of people who do deeply love him. So let me give you the fourth last one that marks biblical Christianity. They want to kill Jesus because they hate him. You know, what, you know what marks biblical Christianity? We love the death of Jesus in a different perspective than they had. That symbol right there in this room today is our hope. God's Son did die in our place, not just for the nation, but for the whole world to gather people into one flock and one people. So we are cross-centered, death of Jesus kind of people because of the hope that's there. So just two more points and we'll be done this morning. What was Jesus' response to all of this aligning about him, rejecting him, believing him, or mocking him? Well, no surprise, he continues to align himself with the Father and abide with the Father. So it's not time yet. So look at 54. So Jesus, and I believe that we're about to read here are some of the saddest, most tragic words in the New Testament. Listen to these words. They have been waiting for the Messiah to come for thousands of years, generation after generation after generation, from the promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And look, He has come in their midst. Look at 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews. Is that not tragic? Listen to that. They were the generation in the Father's sovereign, perfect plan to send Jesus at the perfect time to walk among the first century people. And they got to see Him. They got to talk to Him. He touched them. He healed them. He awakened them. He healed their eyes. He opened their ears. And He proclaimed these incredible, incredible things. And this special generation had Jesus walking openly among them and now they've gotten to the place where they're done with them and he no longer walked openly among them 
anymore. And you know what happened? He gave them, watch, he gave them, and he does this today, he gave them what they wanted. You don't want me? I'm going to turn you over to yourself, and so you can have it. And has there been, in the last 2,000 years, a people more hated than them and, and, and lost because of their rejection of Christ? Remember Romans 9 through 11? He hardened their heart, the door opened for the, for the time of the Gentiles to come in, and he will, he, he will restore them again. There will be a Jewish revival eventually, and I know they do come to faith now, but this rejection that they gave of Christ was the effects of it are unbelievably powerful. And so I want to I want to close basically our time today by taking about hang with me. Y'all good? Everybody good? I want to take about ten more minutes and I want to talk about our country for a minute. And I want to show you biblically why we are where we are today. And then in two weeks from today, I'm going to give you the ultimate answer and solution to this. We can't get to John 12 yet. Um, well, we could if y'all wanted to stay around. We'd be here till about 2, but we, I guess we could order pizza or something. But, uh, but I, want, I want to talk for a moment about why we are at where we are. Because I think in some ways, we have, God has said, okay, this is what you want. You want a chaotic world government. You want a chaotic culture? Okay, America, here you go. This is what you wanted. And we are reaping what we have sown. So I want you to go to Romans chapter 1 for a second. And I don't have time to dive deeply into this, but I want to give you some solid principles here in regard to what the Jews have been experiencing for a long time in regard to their rejection of Christ as the Messiah. Because to have Jesus withdraw from you as He did of the Jews, He withdrew from walking openly among them, was an incredible tragedy. And so over the last couple of weeks, He just stops among them and He goes away. And So look with me in verse 18. And we're going to zip through this, so just hang with me here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, not just a little, but all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here's where we are today. When you suppress something, you push it down. You don't exalt it. And so we are living in a culture today where biblical truth that has guided our nation for a long time has been pushed down. It's been suppressed and not exalted and not lifted up and so we live in a day and you look around of so many lies now lies have always been around but it, but we are dominated by lies in every area around us and it comes from this pushing down and this suppression of truth and it is connected it is connected verse 18 tells us in this suppression of the truth. So look at 19 and 20. It, this suppression is 
connected to the revelation of the truth of who God is. So 1920 says, for what, what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God showed it to them. He revealed it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so the culture today is suppressing the truth and the revelation that God gave to this great country and its founding and the biblical truths that have guided the churches for so long. And and there's just this pushing down of this revelation of God and the reality of this is that man has no excuse because God has made Himself known. So if you have a heart today that's tender toward the guy living in the middle of nowhere on some island everywhere, God has made enough known about Him for that person to believe. He has made Himself known enough so that people are without an excuse. And so for those who suppress the truth and they reject the revelation of God, Look at 21 and 22. There are two direct results. For although they knew God, they knew this revelation, they did not honor Him as God nor give thanks to Him. And here's the result. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And they claimed to be wise, but they became fools here's the result of the suppression of god and the revelation revelation of god and this no excuse that we have is that it ultimately leads to a messed up mind and a messed up heart and you may be like me i sometimes read an article or i look at the news and this is what i do i just i'm constantly just doing this i just can't believe what i read and what i'm hearing What's evil we are calling good. What's sour we call sweet and vice versa. And it just and, and here's why. This suppression of truth in the invasion of lies and this rejection of the revelation of God in Christ that has come to us, it darkens the mind. The mind is messed up and the heart is messed up. And so it, it results in verse 23. And verse 23 says this, And so there was an exchange of the glory of God in this revelation that He gave of Himself for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And here's what happens. When the, when the mind is futile and the heart is dark, there is a search for truth and an understanding of things, even though it's been intentionally ignoring the revelation that is there. And what's happened in our country today is we have rejected reality to worship things of resemblance. The creation is a beautiful expression of the mind of God and the creativity of God. Have you seen a giraffe lately? Have you seen the, yesterday morning, yesterday morning, Friday morning? I don't know, I'm lost in days. I was up really early going to play disc golf somewhere and the sunrise was unbelievable. I posted it on the Facebook page. God is incredibly creative. But these creations that He gave, they are expressions of who He is. They are not Him. And so our country today has rejected revelation 
to worship things of resemblance. We value animals more than unborn children. Why is that the case? Because we have futile minds and darkened hearts. And so you know what God does? God just says, that's what you want? You can have it. You can have it. And so look at 25 through 27. Or 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves their bodies the due penalty for their error. And so we see in 25 through 27 here that God gave us over to lustful hearts that dishonor the body. We exchange truth for lies and we bowed to creation and not to the creator. And notice that earlier it was suppressing truth. Now it's just exchanging it. Just get rid of it. Get rid of it for something else. In 28 through 31, we're almost done here. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithful, heartless, ruthless. Does that sound like any place you live? Sounds like some place I live. This refusal to acknowledge God destroys mind, heart, watch this, and body. And so God says, this is what you want. I'm, I'm going to turn you over to yourself. And this is what ultimately comes. And this is how we know we live in Romans 1 world. Look at 32. And though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice these kind of things deserve to die, they do them anyway, and then they give approval to those who practice them. I know we got kids in the room, and I will not go too far so that you parents don't have to talk on the way home in the car about things. But it's Pride Month, if you haven't noticed. And we've made a mockery of the rainbow, which came from the heart of God. And I hate seeing it everywhere I go because it's, it mocks His name and it should glorify Him. And so I, I, I want us to feel the weight of this. Jesus is about two weeks from death in the text. People are aligning in their perspective of Jesus. In the last couple of weeks, instead of walking openly among them and them falling at His feet and going, tell me more about you. Can I have another opportunity to worship you? 
Can I ask you another question? Can I bring my, can I bring my friend to you who's blind? He quit walking openly among them. Why? Because they didn't want him. And so he said, you don't want me? Okay, I'm, I'm going to step away for a bit. And he's going to come back. And he will come back into the place. And he will eventually, at the end of the week, he will, he will fulfill Caiaphas' words. He will die a substitutionary death for sinners. And just briefly, there's one last group. It's the crowd and they arrive and they're like, where is he? Is he going to come? Why are they so interested if he's going to come to this third Passover that the Scripture records? Because the other two Passovers, fireworks. Conflict with Jesus and the religious leaders. And now they know they're trying to kill him and arrest him. They're like, is he going to come or is he going to stay away and praise his name? He's not a coward. He's courageous. And he will come, and we, we don't understand the weight of what he felt of what he was going to have to do when he went to the cross. And are you not glad that he said, not my will, Father, but your will be done. Your will be done. And we receive the benefit of the incredible blessing of Christ. And so ultimately, as we finish today, Everybody in the room this morning has aligned themselves in a perspective of Jesus. You're playing the game like the crowd. They're, they liked Jesus. They didn't hate him like the religious leaders did. And so there on Monday, they will lay palm branches down and do what? They will say what? Hosanna to the Son of David. Guess what they will say on Friday? Crucify him. So it's not enough to be curious about Jesus. It's not enough to just be okay about Jesus. If that's the case with you, you will be fickle like the crowd. And ultimately, the call is follow Him wherever He goes and whatever He does. So we've had something interesting happen in the life of the church this week that you may know about and you may not know about. So for about two years now, we've been trying to do a, a family mission trip together to Arkansas. And so on Tuesday morning, Mark and I came into the office and we got a message that said, Hey, uh, y'all may not be coming to Little Rock from the leader of the ministry up there. And we're like, what? So immediately, Mark and I were like, all right. We talk, you know, we talk about this all the time. We sing this all the time. If he's not in it, what? We don't want it. If he's not leading, we don't want to follow him. And so, uh, so Mark, Mark and I just sat down in his office and we just prayed, okay, God, you're not surprised ever by anything. And so if we're not supposed to go to Little Rock, we're just going to leave this in your hands. At Life Point, we just want to follow you and we want to be involved in whatever you want to do. So God said, we're having a meeting Wednesday night. We'll let you know Thursday morning. By the way, nine days from the mission trip if you're coming or not. So on Tuesday, we just contacted some people and said, hey, we don't know what's going to happen, but we just want to ask, could we come to your city and bring the message of Jesus to your city and serve people? And so they began to pray about it as well. And 
Um, and so we're not going to Little Rock, Arkansas, next Saturday in six days. We're going to Mississippi. Yeah. And you know what? I have, we, we don't have full plans yet. But this is what I know to be true. My God is at work. And if he doesn't want you to go somewhere, you know what he'll do? Remember when he told Paul? Paul wanted to go somewhere to Asia, and he said, no, you're not. It, the text says in, in Acts there, the Spirit of Jesus told him, don't go there and tell people about me. I want you to go somewhere else. And that night he got a dream from a man in Macedonia saying, would you come? And we just kind of feel like Mississippi saying, come, come. And so we're going to go. Listen, church. Uh, We must align our lives up with the sovereign Son of God, and when we do, He does unique things that change our plans, but it puts us in line with His heart, which is what we want more than anything else. Isn't that awesome He did that this week? And I don't know if we're going to come back going, the whole city of Gulfport believed in Jesus this week. That'd be awesome. But I just know this, that I think we're going where we're supposed to go. And I'm excited about whatever it is that he wants to do. Because he is our living hope. Not our dead hope. He is our living hope. Let's pray.